This is Generation Justice, a multimedia project that trains youth to harness the power of media for social change. I'm Edgar Cruz. And I'm Kenya Alonso. For tonight's production, we'll be discussing several important issues. The president of the national organization Free Press, Craig Aaron, joins us to give us an update about the threats to net neutrality and internet privacy, as well as what is happening at the FCC. Dr. Bernadine Hernandez, a UNM professor of Chicano Studies, will be talking about the history of borderlands and how we think of borders. Then, some of our own youth chime in on this important topic. Kira Luna of Recuerda Cesar Chavez Committee has stopped by to invite you all to the Cesar Chavez celebrations. And we'll catch up on the week's resistance headlines and community events. As always, music is a staple here at GJ, and we bring you some of our best. Here is Change by RM and Wale. Oh, tell me that talk can never win the lie. Oh, tell me that rock can never win the ride. Baby, tell me that we gon' someday stop the fight. And tell me that every, everything gon' be a ride. Oh, tell me who's stupid, baby, has a meal them. Just tell me who's insane, baby, has a meal them. In this crazy world, after cases, could we get the pearl? But this world was... Just last week, the U.S. Senate voted to kill the FCC's broadband consumer privacy rules. Data privacy and net neutrality are both under attack from Congress and the Governmental Regulatory Commission, the FCC. These threats are so real to each of us and will make the digital divide even greater. Craig Aaron, the president and CEO of Free Press, joins us with the latest updates. Here is Senior Fellow Paula Dinekla with Craig Aaron. Hello, I'm Polly Dinekla, a Generation Justice Senior Fellow. I'm here with Craig Aaron from Free Press, who is calling us from D.C., Craig, welcome back to Generation Justice. Thanks so much for having me back. And Craig, as we normally do, can you please introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, I'm Craig Aaron. I'm the president and CEO of uh, Free Press and the Free Press Action Fund. Uh, We're a national nonpartisan nonprofit group uh, that works on issues at the intersection of media, technology, and democracy. The new administration recently released its proposed budget and public broadcasting like NPR and PBS is set to be defunded by 2018. How would the lack of public broadcasting affect our country and why is this such an important issue? What's really in danger here from these cuts, uh, the, the reality of the federal budget is that public broadcasting is a tiny, tiny, tiny percentage uh, of the federal budget. It only amounts to around $400 million a year, which works out to about a $1.35 per uh, person living in this country. Uh, so it's really a small amount of the federal budget, but it's absolutely essential to keeping stations on the air. And the the stations, the, the commun- public and community media outlets that would really be endangered by these cuts are not the ones in rich communities. They're not the ones in big cities. It is actually the stations that are uh, serving the rest of the country, uh, rural communities, immigrant communities, tribal communities, uh, that really rely on the grants from the Corporation of Public Broadcasting to be able to continue their operations. It's an essential part of their budget. And keeping these voices, independent, non-commercial voices on the air, uh, that, that, that rely on these funds. Now, the f- simple fact is we're actually spending too little on public media. Uh, we should be spending five or ten times more what we do uh, to actually support a truly vibrant community and public media system. But the idea 
that this budget would zero out this funding and that we're actually going to have to have a fight again here in Washington uh, over this is, is, is really sort of ridiculous, but here we are. Um, so people are mobilizing again, uh, thousands and thousands of people. We delivered 660,000 petitions to the Senate this week, uh, along with a set of allies, uh, and we're rallying out there with a bunch of school kids uh, who are concerned about, you know, funds going away from educational programming. But the, the thing that's most in danger from these cuts are those community voices, are those smaller stations. And, uh, it, you know, these are all essential voices out in the country, and they're, they're the few remaining non-commercial voices uh, that, that people really rely on to actually talk about what's happening in their community that, in many cases, make the airwaves available to community members in ways that the commercial media simply doesn't. And I think uh, the Republican Party, frankly, is making a grave mistake in thinking that this is red meat for the base and that this is something that people don't care about because we've found time and again, you know, four or five times just in the time I've been doing this work over the last 12 or 15 years, uh, that actually public media is incredibly popular with the American public. They actually think it's among the best use of their tax dollars, uh, and they're shocked when they find out how little money it actually is that we spend, um, and it's not something that they want to see cut. So that's going to be one of the political fights among many, many political fights that have opened up here in the early days of the Trump administration. As somebody who comes from a really rural community and a place that's like huge and vast, one of the things that I hadn't thought about was how it would affect my home community and especially deep in the res where the only way that you can really get information is through the radio because uh, the Internet hasn't expanded enough to where it reaches um, communities on like the deep res and then you don't get cell phone service out there. I think it's really important for like everyone to know that it's not just important for like the bigger cities and for larger communities, but it really is important for our rural communities. And so I really appreciate you bringing that up and making sure that all of us like really understand that. It's easy when you're talking about PBS and NPR, and, you know, we do it, too. We, we talk about Sesame Street. We talk about PBS Kids. You know, these are things that there's a, a wide familiarity with, and, you know, it's an, a simpler story to tell in some ways. But I think that the real danger of these cuts is what's actually going to happen in local communities, and especially in places that are just completely unserved or underserved by, certainly by the mainstream media, and as you importantly raise, even by technology. You know, broadband expansion and, and changing that reality is something that's a really important priority as well. But the fact is there are some places that, that aren't going to see uh, that kind of service. And so this idea that, oh, everyone just has Internet access now or everyone can just afford to get online to get the information they need is not the reality. Uh, people can't afford it, and in many places still, people simply can't get service. And so these other forms of media, traditional forms of media, uh, like radio and TV, become so, so important. Um, and I think that does too often get lost in the in the debates here in Washington and kind of the elite conversation that goes on around these essential funds. So I think our first step is we get we got to save these funds. We've got to mobilize and let members of Congress know uh, that th this is completely unacceptable. Uh, and I think that's a message they're starting to get, and they've certainly got it before. Then. There's a whole other conversation which has to do with what do we actually need to do with our public and community media system and how do we kind of shift the priorities and the support to the places that need it most. That's a longer-term fight. 
that's not necessarily one we can have right in the face of the, the kind of cuts that the Trump administration is proposing. But in many ways, I think it's actually a more important discussion um, to really get serious about what do, we, what do we need from our public media system? How is it providing community information? How can we reinvest in news gathering and actually giving people the information they need about what's happening in their communities, the kind of journalism that can hold leaders accountable? Our public media system is very capable of that if you invest in it. If you don't, then you start to lean toward corporate underwriting, and it's nothing but, you know, British soap operas being broadcast. And, you know, hey, I like watching the occasional British soap opera, but that's not the fundamental need we have from our public media system, from our community media system. And so we need to shift some of those priorities um, to actually, you know, meet the needs of people all across the country. What's underlying the conversation that we're having is access to information. And part of accessing information is net neutrality. Since you last spoke to Generation Justice, a lot has changed. Uh, so can you give us a brief overview of everything that's happened? Um, so there's a lot moving in sort of the media policy world and at the Federal Communications Commission. Uh, and I think we spoke last time about the, the new FCC chair and uh, G. Pai and some of the initial moves he had made um, to, to, to really try to undo the few good things that the previous administration has done on media and technology policy. And in the last two years of the Obama administration, there was real progress made. Uh, you know, the administration was frankly dragged kicking and screaming. Uh, and under a lot of activist pressure to do the right thing, but they did it in some important areas, uh, expanding uh, subsidies they're called the Lifeline Program uh, to help support broadband, passing these fundamental net neutrality rules, uh, and, and a number of other uh, broadband privacy protections uh, that were really crucial, saying, like, hey, your phone and cable company can't just – uh, you know, spy on what you're doing online and then sell that information to advertisers without your permission. These were really important common sense public and consumer protections. And of course, the Trump administration has moved very quickly to try to undo them. So what we've seen in the early days of the FCC is an attempt to, uh, you know, to kind of uh, nip at the edges, uh, do a thousand cuts at these regulations to kind of undermine their effectiveness. And they're working really in league with the Trump administration and Congress to do a lot of damage. So the, the Congress actually voted uh, in, in a very sort of rare, it used to be a rare move. It had only been used once before Trump took office, something of uh, pass a bill to actually overturn FCC regulations that would have protected broadband privacy. So it was a party line vote uh, in the Senate to completely undo these fundamental protections that people fought so hard for. Uh, that bill now goes to the House. It's not law yet, but it's very, very much in danger. And, you know, in many ways, this is the beginning of a much larger attack on Internet freedom, on our ability to go online, do whatever we want, download whatever we want, without needing to go to our phone or cable company for permission. Uh, that's what net neutrality is all about, and uh, it's potentially really in danger. It's easier to say they're going to get rid of net neutrality. Uh, they're using some, some sort of technical ways to get rid of these privacy regs that allow Congress to do it with really out any serious public debate. That won't be the same for net neutrality, but it means that they have the knives out and they're really coming to do away with these fundamental protections. And the thing that they're most 
aiming for is what made those privacy regulations possible, which was the authority called Title II authority uh, at the Federal Communications Commission, which is just a complicated way of saying that the FCC has the power to step in when corporations are doing damage or they're, uh, you know, abusing uh, their own uh, customers and subscribers. Uh, that's what allowed them to pass these important protections, and that's absolutely what the corporations are lining up to try to undo. And this is the same story you see when it comes to environmental protections, when it comes to workplace safety, um, just across the whole uh, landscape here in Washington, this administration um, is, is trying to do as much as they can, as fast as they can, um, and hoping and creating that chaos um, that they'll be able to get away with it. Craig, how can consumers protect themselves from their privacy being invaded? Call your representatives in Congress, the House. Uh, the Senate already passed this bill, but it has to get through the House. Um, they're expecting that they're going to try to move it fast because people are just finding out about this, right? There's so much happening, so many bad things happening every time you turn around healthcare pipelines um, that, you know, something like Internet privacy is kind of hard for it to, <laughs> to, 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 to get through um, all the noise that's happening. But this is a bill that's going to show up in the House very, very soon. So calling your representative, telling them um, that you absolutely don't support overturning uh, the FCC's privacy regulations, um, that you oppose the Congressional Review Act bill. It's being introduced by a congresswoman named Marsha Blackburn, uh, that you oppose that bill. You do not want them to support it. That's incredibly important for them to hear from you, from hear from their own constituents, and that you're very worried. You don't want your cable company spying on you without your permission, and you certainly don't want them selling uh, your personal browsing histories and information to advertisers without your permission. You know, whether your rep is a Republican or a Democrat, it's important that they hear from you because this is a bill that can still be stopped, but we, you know, we're going to have to move right now. Is there anything else that you would like to add? I would say however people are trying to do their activism at this time uh, really matters. Whatever we can disrupt and derail makes it that much harder for, uh, you know, the, the, these dangerous forces really to get their way. And, you know, that these issues around Internet access, around uh, the kind of information we're getting about our communities really play a big role in, you know, w what's on the political agenda, what kind of change is possible, what kind of opposition is possible. Uh, and so they are they, they are part and parcel of a lot of bigger changes a lot of us would like to see happen. Um, and, and so they are, they're worth paying attention to because media tools, internet tools are, are so essential to any hope of being able to organize, of communities being able to tell their own stories uh, themselves. That's going to be incredibly important uh, in, in the weeks and months and years ahead. Uh, and so I, I hope people in their very busy schedules will take a minute um, to pay attention, check out freepress.net. We can use these tools to push back as well. Um, they, they can be used as tools of liberation. They can be used as tools, you know, to just let your friends and neighbors know this stuff is happening. That can be incredibly powerful because what they're betting on here in Washington is that nobody's paying attention and that you don't care. And they're going to send you that message again and again that you're, what you're doing, your calls and your petitions and your emails don't make a difference. And I'm sitting here in Washington and I can tell you it's not true. Um, they're actually just uh, afraid of what you're going to do when you find out what's really going on. Thank you so much for sharing that with us, Craig. I really appreciate it. There's so much that you can do and you can make a difference. And so I really appreciate you um, saying that and reiterating that for everyone and the work that you do at Free Press. Uh, anytime. Uh, really appreciate all of you and uh, thanks for doing this.
for Generation Justice. I'm Polly Dineclaw. Thank you to Craig Aaron. We appreciate so much all that Free Press is doing to keep communication a free and human right. GJ has teamed up with Free Press for their 100 Days of Disruption campaign. And for more information about Free Press and the 100 Days of Disruption, visit freepress.net. Now for Take Warning by Operation Ivy. Bernadine Hernandez is an assistant professor of American Literary Studies at UNM. Her classes focus on the intersection of American literacy production, Chicana feminism, and critical gender and sexuality studies. Bernadine will be sharing with us her intersectional perspective on borderlands. She sheds light on America's divisive history and how America has benefited from deporting and importing people when it benefits nationalism. Here again is Paula Dinekla with Dr. Hernandez. Hello, my name is Polly Dneklaw. I'm a senior fellow with Generation Justice, and I'm sitting here with Dr. Bernadette Hernandez. Dr. Hernandez, can you please introduce yourself? My name is Dr. Bernadine Hernandez, and I'm a native New Mexican. I'm a recent PhD from the University of California, San Diego. Um, my specialty is transnational feminism and 19th, early 20th century American literature and empire. I also do work in Chicana and Chicano literature and culture and um, Latina and Chicano sexualities and borderland policies and theory. Dr. Hernandez, can you give a history about deportation policies by the U.S. government? Yeah, um, definitely. So um, the first kind of immigration act happened in 1907. But before that, like I said, in 1882, we had the Chinese Exclusion Act. In 1902, we had the Newlands Reclamation Act, which funded irrigation project for agricultural production. And that's very important to think about what that means in the Southwest, because that was a time when the U.S. was beginning to see that they needed migrant labor work. The Southwest wasn't properly irrigated for that type of um, economic system, and so the 1902 Newlands Reclamation Act funded this agricultural production for these big agribusinesses. In 1862, we had the prohibition on the coolie trade, um, and I don't know if, if everybody is aware of what a coolie is, but a coolie is basically an indentured servant from different parts of Asia. After the Newlands Reclamation Act in 1902, we have this first kind of wave of Immigration Act, which is the 1907 Immigration Act, and that requires all immigrants entering the U.S. to pass through an official port of entry and submit themselves to inspection and receive official authorization to come into the country. After that, in 1907, we have the Gentlemen's Immigration Act, which excludes or curtails the Japanese immigration from happening. So we see kind of a trend, right? We see the coolies, and we see the Chinese Exclusion Act, and then we see the Japanese Exclusionary Act. And then in 1913, which is also mirrored in 1920, we see the Alien Law Act, which is an act that prohibits, quote-unquote, 
illegal aliens from purchasing farmland. And so this kind of partners with the Newlands Reclamation Act where proper irrigation projects were stabilized for agribusiness. And we see that we want, this is a perfect example of us wanting to see the labor migrant. We want the bodies, right? We want the labor, we want the work, but we don't want the actual person or the selfhood in the U.S. And that's a perfect example where that ban of land to produce any type of agriculture is banned for uh, quote-unquote illegal aliens. After that, we have the Immigration Act of 1917. And this restricts immigration, um, and it's not a regulating policy at all. It's a restriction policy that is marked towards different races. It's basically marked towards nativism. This act is overturned, or it's, it's actually law until 1952 where it's overturned that's the that's the big immigration and naturalization act of 1952 where it's no longer based on race or nativism but it's based on quotas who can enter the u.s depends on how many people from that specific country is already here and it's a two percent two percent of those people are able to come into the u.s then we have kind of like the Mexican Revolution happening 1910 to 1920, and this is the modernization of Mexico, where the U.S. and Mexico really do have close ties economically. We see a lot of immigration, not only because of this economic modernization of Mexico, but because a lot of people are being displaced in Mexico at that time. So we see more wage laborers in Mexico, but a lot more displacement. I think in about 19, 1900 to 1910, there's about 500,000 immigrants from Mexico coming into the U.S. By, I think, I want to say like 1920, there's a million. So we could see how those economic forces um, in Mexico kind of push migration and, um, up towards the north, right? Where are we going to find jobs? Then we have the creation of the U.S. Border Patrol in 1924. How are we going to curtail, quote-unquote, illegal immigration? It's really interesting because the Border Patrol was created in 1924 to curtail not only racialized minorities, particularly from Mexico and Central America, but prostitutes, people that were mentally ill, anarchists. So it was a very broad kind of scope project in 1924, but the Border Patrol couldn't they, they, they couldn't get a handle on it. This is at the moment when we see the process of racialization of Mexican and Latin American peoples becoming so dangerous to, to the U.S. The discourse is perpetuated not only through civility, but also just we don't, it's, it's dangerous for us to have them here, right? It really was a failing of the U.S. Border Patrol that they couldn't, I mean, obviously it's a failing of just like law in, in general, but it was a failing of theirs that they couldn't control what their original mission was to set out to do. So they then began focusing on racialized populations. And then in 1942, we start the Bracero program. And that's an agreement between the US and Mexico to bring farm workers over um, legally to do work because of a dying economic system in the US because of the war. That ends in 1964. 1954 is Operation Wetback, which is a big, huge deal in the U.S. kind of historical imagination where we see people kind of saying that, you know, this was just a sweep of migrants, Mexican migrants, and even U.S. nationals who are Mexican-Americans. It, it kind of gets overdrawn and overblown in the national imaginary because this is just kind of old tactics that the Border Patrol had already put into place. Just we see them reinvented at that time. 
Um, and so it's not really anything new in 1924 that is happening with Operation Wetback. It's just it, it, the historical imagination of the U.S. wants to perpetuate that as something that was an anomaly um, when it really wasn't. The border industrialization program started in the 1960s, and this then led into NAFTA, into 1994, where we see free trade actually happening, right? So this isn't an immigration policy, but we see goods being able to flow um, freely across borders, but bodies are not able to cross freely. Then in 2001, we see the U.S. Patriot Act. And that's kind of just a brief overview of all of the immigration and border policies that we see historically. How does today's administration deportation practices compare to previous deportation actions? I think that there's targeted populations. And we have to think about why these populations are targeted to begin with. And so if we think about the Chinese Exclusion Act as kind of mirroring this moment of the Muslim ban, we have to think capital, right? We have to think about what is in the best what is in the best interest for the people that are in charge, right, in the US. And so the ban of the Chinese Exclusion Act in 1882. Began, we began to see a very exclusionary practice towards Chinese immigrants because they were doing labor that nobody else wanted to do. They were working and whatever they had to do to survive because there was no more jobs on the railroad, there was no more jobs finding gold for the gold rush. But I think that the discourse for today, it could be tracked similarly through capital, but it's a lot different. We're, we're looking at kind of this generalization of um, racialized populations that is very much linked with a fundamentalist religion ideology, right? So this is the excuse that we have, is that we don't, we want to keep America safe, when in reality, out of the seven countries that the U.S. has banned in those Muslim countries, I want to say about five of them are being bombed right now by the U.S. So it begs you to question who we're saving ourselves from um, and why that discourse continues to perpetuate itself. Dr. Hernandez, is there anything else that you would like to add? It's really hard to unravel and particularly when you're talking to people just on the streets, because it's very hard to be political with people in this kind of moment because it's so tense. But I think that what we should remember is how border policy is always very much it's steeped in white supremacy and white entitlement. There's ways that the laws have unveiled themselves that their white supremacy can never be blamed for the wrongdoings of what is happening in the country right now. And I think that it's very much a displaced anger. Um, I think that we have to think about where where this anger comes from in terms of borders and illegal, quote-unquote, illegal crossings. And we have to think about why people are so angry and it's because they think that their jobs are being taken away or they think that their possessive individualism is taken away or they think that their liberal humanist like ideologies are being taken away when in reality it's very much kind of nation states I want to say economic policies that are forcing people to migrate in the first place. NAFTA is a prime example where we see the remnants of the border industrialization program from the 1970s of maquiladoras framing the U.S.-Mexico border, large industry happening in Mexico that are taking over kind of the production. And we see small businesses going out of business because they can't afford to sustain themselves. So what else are they supposed to do? Obviously, they're going to migrate north or they're going to migrate where the, the jobs are, right? 
we see this discourse of they're taking our jobs. We see the discourse of, well, if they just worked hard enough, they might be able to make it. U.S. law doesn't ever allow for that to happen because it's always so invested in whose labor they can exploit. And I say that very truthfully and almost I hope that it's not a surprise to anybody that we can't blame individuals or particularly racialized populations on these type of economic policies. We have to look at the bigger picture and provoke our anger towards global capitalism at this point or patriarchy or state-sanctioned violence. Um, these are big, huge ideological apparatuses that function to conceal actually what's going on. And so I just want everyone to kind of think through what they're saying in terms of who's to blame for um, the economy being so bad or who's to blame for housing, the housing market going down or who's to blame for X, Y, and Z. It, we should really be more critical and nuanced as to how we think about how economic policies influence people to migrate in the first place. Dr. Ed Hernandez, I just really want to thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to come and talk with us here at Generation Justice. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. For Generation Justice, I'm Polly Dinequa. Thank you, Dr. Hernandez, for taking time to come in and share your knowledge with us all. To deepen this conversation with Dr. Hernandez, I'd like to bring in youth with different backgrounds to discuss their perspectives on borderlands. With me tonight is Isela Loya, whose father migrated from Valle de Zaragoza, Chihuahua, Mexico, Yusuf Amir, who came to the United States as an Iraqi refugee, who crossed many more than one border, and co-host Kenya Alonzo, who brings an indigenous perspective about borders. Thank you all for being with us. What moments um, from Dr. Hernandez's conversation really resonated with you, and what could you share? Something that Dr. Hernandez said that I resonated with was, remember, border policy is steeped in white supremacy. It really resonated with me because I find it ironic how the importance of borders has been emphasized and immigration has become criminalized, even though in the past white colonizers didn't necessarily respect native borders and were immigrants themselves. So what I took away from this was borders seem to only be there as restrictions, not for safety, but for restrictions on chances at better opportunities. Thank you, Kenya. Yusuf? Well, as an immigrant who has crossed many borders, it was very difficult to get to America. We had to wait in Syria for a year, and we were very, very lucky because many other groups of immigrants who wanted to come to America had waited much, much longer, many years than we have. And tell us about uh, the experience, Dr. Hernandez also speaks about once you're in America. Well, when you're in America, um, people say that immigrants take up their jobs, take up a school space, but that's not necessarily true. It helps America in many ways. It enriches America with their education, with their schools, with everything, with culture, religion, Absolutely. and so much more. Absolutely. Thank you, Yusuf. And Isela. What really stood out to me was when Dr. Hernandez was talking about the legislative acts that are created relating to borders, which reminds me of the Admistia para Indocumentados that President Ronald Reagan implemented that lasted about four or six years and ended in May 1988. That legislative act helped my dad get his U.S. citizenship after crossing the border. Thank you three for reflecting on what borderlands means and how it affects people so differently. And also thank you, Dr. Bernadine Hernandez, for sparking this conversation with us. 
Up next is Somos Sur by Anatiju, featuring Shadia Mansur. Nos dices que debemos sentarnos, pero las ideas solo pueden levantarnos, caminar, recorrer, no rendirse ni retroceder, ver, aprender como esponja, absorbe, nadie sobre todos, faltan todos, suman todos, para todos, todo para nosotros, soñamos en grande que se caiga el imperio, lo gritamos algo, no queda más remedio, esto no es utopía, es alegre rebeldía del how this marcha y fiesta has celebrated the life and legacy of Chicano and human rights leader Cesar Chavez. Now joining us from the Recuerda Cesar Chavez committee is Kira Luna and Dani Hernandez to speak about the events happening April 1st. Welcome. Thank you so much for having us. So we are so excited, as was just said, we are going into the 24th annual year of celebrating Cesar Chavez, Dolores Huerta, the work they did together, and the ongoing work that our communities continue to do around awareness to preserve and really uplift the dignity of farm workers and making sure that their rights are met as they're in the fields picking food for our families. So our committee, which is all volunteer, has been meeting for the past few months, and we've been planning really a a week-long series of events. Um, And we're so grateful for this opportunity to share with the community. Uh, Most of the events are completely open and free to the public, and we are just so excited to invite everyone to join us this year. So we're going to kick off our week on Wednesday, and this is in collaboration with um, both the CAMP and the HEP, the High School Equivalency Program at UNM, and they host... um, what is now also an annual event called Farm Workers Awareness Week. It spans both Wednesday and Thursday. There'll be music, there'll be food, there'll be speakers sharing history about the movimiento. So we invite anyone, um, especially if you're on UNM, if you're a student, or staff, faculty, it's around the lunch hour in the sub both days. Um, and so please check that out, support the work. That's really a great educational opportunity if, if someone's not familiar with the struggles that farm workers go through um, to learn about what that looks like, um, both historically and in present day. So that's Wednesday and Thursday. And then on Friday, our committee gathers around 350 middle school and elementary students at Sanchez Farm in the South Valley. And that is for what we call the Dolores Huerta Day of Service and Learning. So this is an opportunity for young folks to really get their hands dirty, to do some hands-on experiential learning around the farm workers movement, around what it's like to be in touch with agriculture. Um, And so that's so exciting. If you can imagine nearly 400 kiddos running around a farm. Um, So that's always a really fun event. And then we will have our main event, which is on Saturday, April 1st. And this year we're really fortunate that there's sort of two parts to this event. Well, really technically three. So two that we've always done and then one that's brand new, which is what is currently South Valley Gateway Park will be renamed to Dolores Huerta Gateway Park. And so we'll have the naming ceremony. Shuttles from the National Hispanic Cultural Center start at 8.30. The actual ceremony at the park will start at 9.30. And once that finishes, we will actually kick off our annual march from there. We'll meet up with other marchers at the National Hispanic Cultural Center, and then we will kick it off, go through the neighborhood, come back to the NHCC, and have our fiesta, which we are so excited to have two headliners this year. We have both Kiko Via Masar and we have the local group Calle 66. So it's a great chance for people to come out and dance, listen to music, have some food, um, and we are 
very honored to have Dolores Huerta herself as the keynote speaker. So she's very honored to have the park named after her. So she'll be joining us, of course, for the naming ceremony, and then she'll be giving the keynote at our event. So especially for young folks who are really looking um, to hear from a very powerful person, um, of course, shared power, power in the positive way that our communities really seek, this is a chance to come out, be inspired by her words, um, to really meet a living legend. This is also an opportunity to march with a living legend. Um, I've had the opportunity a few other times because this is not the first time she's come here. Uh, however, um, this is really exciting because we are naming a park, well, rather, Berlingo County Parks and Recreation is naming a park after her, and uh, we're privileged enough to be a part of that. Um, I also need to do a little bit of, of housekeeping. Um, I need to let people know that Dolores, soon to be named Dolores Huerta Gateway Park has zero parking. Uh, I know it's ironic, but uh, a park has no parking. Um, and so we ask people to park at the National Hispanic Cultural Center and then shuttle over and then, um, or, or walk over and then join us on the march or just show up a little bit later. And uh, those times are Gateway Park uh, renaming ceremony starts around 9 o'clock. At uh, 10.30, we're going to start the march from Gateway Park. At about 10.50, we're going to be passing the National Hispanic Cultural Center, where I'm assuming the bulk of, of the marchers will join us. And then we're going to do a, 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 a two-mile walk around Barelas, or rather a march around Barelas. And um, the other thing I want to mention is that we can't give a lot of details on the radio, and I'm sure not everybody can remember everything that we're saying on the radio. So let me recommend that you find us on Facebook. We're the 24th Annual Cesar Chavez Marcha y Fiesta, or you can find us on, on the web, uh, .org. Um Anything else you have to say, Kira? And all of the different events that we mentioned have separate Facebook pages. So really the website, CesarChavezNM.org, is a great place to start um, to get connected. And just as a reminder, this is a free community event. It's a chance to gather, especially during these difficult political times, um, to come together for really meaningful cause. Um, and the other thing, we would be remiss if we didn't give a shout out to all the young folks who have helped make this possible. We have a ton of young folks from South Valley Academy who will be leading a station and helping volunteer throughout the various events. Um, and so we are just so grateful that this is a multi-generational effort and we invite you to be a part of it coming up this week. Thank you so much, both Kira and Danny Hernandez, for joining us. We're so grateful for all the work and the organizing that was placed into this amazing week of events. De nada. With all that's happening under the new administration, it's important to stay aware and vigilant. And here at Generation Justice, we like to find every way to feel empowered. We know resistance works. So we bring you the resistance headlines, a look at the actions from the past week. Here we go with Edgar Cruz and Alicia Hernandez. Thank you, Kenya. It's week eight of the resistance. Can we say, hands off PBS. 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 Elmo. We won't go. Elmo. We won't go. Elmo. We won't go. Whose streets? Sesame Street. Whose streets? Sesame Street. Whose streets? Sesame Street. Whose streets? Sesame Street. 
Show me what the audience looks like. We start tonight with a chance from toddlers and children who helped deliver 660,000 petitions to Congress last week, urging them, hands off PBS Kids, and to reject Trump's efforts to eliminate federal funding for the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. In the middle of Supreme Court Justice Neil Gorsuch's confirmation hearing, he received the news that the Supreme Court had unanimously overturned one of Gorsuch's most controversial rulings from 2008. All eight justices said he was wrong. Also, former White House chief ethics lawyer during the Bush administration, Richard Painter, called out the Trump administration by tweeting, FBI uncovering evidence of treason? There is no other word for it. More than a dozen protesters took a stand for net neutrality at the FCC's open meeting last week. They were escorted out while wearing their Protect Net Neutrality shirts. Mayors and governors across Washington, Oregon, and California have banded together stating that regardless of what Trump's administration decides to do, they will continue to promote and use clean energy. Trump's approval rating has now sunk to 37% since Gallup polls started tracking approval ratings in 1945. That's the, lo that's the lowest any commander-in-chief has ever been in his point of his term. Fox News took Judge Napolitano off the air indefinitely because he was pushing unverified claims that Obama had wiretapped Trump Tower. As of Friday, GOP lawmakers who had pledged to vote against the Affordable Care Act have changed their minds, meaning Trump does not have enough votes to pass legislation to repeal the Affordable Care Act, and he's losing them. Generation Justice is starting a new newsletter, curating articles from trusted sources on digital security and how we are at risk of losing our civil rights. It's called eWoke, and if you would like your copy, let us know at admin at generationjustice.org. That's our resistance headlines this week. Thank you to all of the individuals, organizations, and groups who have not given up hope. We haven't either and we'll continue sharing the resistance with all of you. Now with Kenya Alonzo. It's now time for calendar. Take it away, Gisela and Youssef. It's time for another community calendar. I'm Gisela Loya. And I'm Youssef Amr. Now that we have heard all about Cesar Chavez's march, let's look at the other events around town. We'll start with the film series examining the U.S.-Mexico border and the historical legacies of race, gender, violence, and citizenship. This film series is an extension of the Borderlands, work that Dr. Hernandez is involved in. This week's film is called Sleep Dealer. Sleep Dealer is a science fiction film directed by Alex Rivera. It explores how technology, technology both oppresses and connects migrants. The film starts at 5 to 7 p.m. at the Humanities Building, room 108 at the University of New Mexico. For more information, you can contact Dr. Bernadine Hernandez at berna18 at unm.edu. What's next, Yusuf? Well, the Albuquerque National Organization for Women will be having a meeting on Tuesday, March 28th from 6 to 8 p.m. The ABQ National Organization for Women focuses on issues like reproductive rights, ending sex discrimination, promoting diversity, and ending racism. For more information on this group, contact Yvonne at 505 881-6365. Wait, aren't we forgetting something? Yeah, I think we're missing something. Oh yeah, where does it take place? The event will take place at the ABQ Center for Peace and Justice on 202 Hardwood Drive Southeast. And when you're done with that, with that, you can head for a Peace Cafe. Peace Cafe is an event that wants to bring back together the community with a cup of coffee and snacks. 
It will take place on Thursday, March 30th, from 12 to 3 p.m. at the Center for Peace and Justice. Also at the Center of Peace and Justice, there will be a presentation by Iyer Brunat about Palestinian rights and nonviolent resistance in Berlin. Iyad leads the Berlin Popular Committee Against the Wall and has led nonviolent weekly demonstrations since 2005. He also leads Friends of Freedom and Justice in Berlin, a pro-Palestinian Palestinian organization that works to build a wide network of people from all over the globe who support freedom and justice for all. This presentation is Friday, March 31st, from 6 to 8 p.m., and is sponsored by the Jewish Voice for Peace. For more information about this event, you can call 505-268-9557. Our next event is hosted by Young Women United. Young Women United will be having a legislative debrief cafecito. Now that the 2017 legislative session is over, Young Women United wants to talk about the bills they worked hard to pass through. They also give the community a chance to support with the next step of each bill. This event will be on April 4th at 5.30 to 7.30 p.m. on 102 Gold Avenue Southwest. For more information, you can contact 505-831-8930. Our last event this week is the March for Science. Uh, what is this March for Science? Um, can you tell me more about it? Yeah, of course, Yusuf. This march is in solidarity with the March in Washington, D.C. to defend and celebrate science. Oh, yeah, that's right. The march takes place Saturday, April 22nd at 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. at the Albuquerque Civic Plaza. What's really cool is this event is happening on Earth Day. For more information, you can visit our Facebook page at March for Science Albuquerque. And that's it for our community calendar. I'm Issa Farmer. And I'm Gisela Loya. We've come to the end of another great production. We would like to thank our guests, Craig Aaron, Dr. Bernadine Hernandez, and Kira Luna. Along with Danny Hernandez as well. Tonight was produced by Cristina Rodriguez, Kateri Zuni, and Roberta Real with editing assistance from Alicia Hernandez. And thank you to all of our youth producers. We can't do what we do without you. Stay connected with us. Check out our website, generationjustice.org, where you can listen to all our past radio programs, see music playlists, read our blogs, watch videos, and so much more. Our podcasts are available on iTunes, so be sure to subscribe and rate us. We're also on social media, so make sure to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Generation Justice is funded by the W.K. Kellogg Foundation with additional funding from the McCune Foundation, Con Alma Health Foundation, the Albuquerque Community Foundation, and of course all of you who have contributed to our project by visiting our website and clicking donate. I'm Kenya Alonzo. And I'm Edgar Cruz. Talk to your friends and family about our show today and join us next Sunday at 7 o'clock. Have a good week and good night.